This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. And now, Christ in Pop Culture presents Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson. everyone. I'm Erin Straza, and with me is Hannah Anderson. We're your hosts for Persuasion, the place where fine ladies, rational minds, and the best kind of company gather to discuss all sorts of ideas and issues. This episode of Persuasion is sponsored in part by B&H Publishing Group, publisher of Frankenstein, A Guide to Reading and Reflecting. Visit bhpublishinggroup.com to get your copy and see all the other classics in that series. We do appreciate you joining today's conversation because we are digging into our fall series called What We Make of Ourselves. And week by week, we are going to work our way through Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and we're going to identify how the themes of this 19th century classic have a whole lot to say about our lives here in the 21st century. And Hannah, I really think that this is important, especially today, because life isn't easy. I know that's a shocker, but there are timeless principles and virtues from this classic that can help us live even today, even in the midst of strange things like a pandemic. Right. And isn't that just the definition of a classic? It's something yes. that lasts and it's timeless. And yes. and I often wonder what things are really, really popular now that everybody's very excited about that won't have relevance 200 years from now. And I've really enjoyed digging into this book because like every page I'm like scribbling in the margins like, that's it. That's happening (laughs) now. And then I'll I'll write down a current example of some of the same underlying themes and principles. And one of the things that really jumped out to me in this week's reading was this question of what do we make of our time? Mm -hmm. Like, what do we do with our lives and the time that's been allotted to us on this earth. Well, and that has been a topic of conversation, especially during COVID, because I don't know if you remember this, but early on in COVID, people were talking about how you needed to redeem your COVID isolation. Oh, right. Don't waste your COVID. Don't waste your COVID. Write a book, learn a language, develop a new skill. I don't know, whatever it would be. But It was that sense of like, use this time well and be productive. And I think those questions of productivity and making something good out of whatever time you have, those are questions that have been around. We we think it's just today that we're so worried about productivity, but there is so much in this book that I've been taking notes in the margins as well and and making comments about, oh, this is just like how we think today about we need to have something that defines us and shows that we've used our time well. Right. And what's even more ironic about the way we first approached COVID of 
wanting to redeem the time we had at home is that over the last 18 months, um, at least within the United States, COVID has been directly responsible for lowering life expectancy. So that on average now, um, our life expectancy, I think it's like maybe 18 months shorter than it was pre-COVID. And that's really prompted a lot of conversations about, oh no, you know, if we only had a certain amount of time in our lives, we have less now, you know, statistically speaking. And I had actually come across a really interesting book lately that was grappling with this question. It's uh, 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman. And the 4,000 weeks in the title is basically what you're allotted. So in an average human lifespan in the West, you've got 4,000 weeks. And the underlying question is, what are you going to do with them? I I read this book as well. And when I've told people that I'm reading this book and I'm explaining what the 4,000 weeks refers to, I've had varying replies. Some people go, that's it? And then other people are like, oh, that seems like a lot. And so I think that the reaction of, oh, you have 4,000 weeks, how will you fill them? Whether you think that's a lot or not enough, um, there is still that sense of like, oh, now I feel like I can hold it. Instead of saying my life, you're saying, oh, there are 4,000 weeks. I know what a week is like. You you know how you move through your whole week with those seven days. And so to know that you have 4,000 of them and you also know uh, however many of them are behind you, so you probably only have so many left, I think that it does bring into focus what is it that we are filling those weeks with. And I found the the concepts in Oliver Berkman's book to be helpful for me to realize that there are lots of things I may want to do, but there are also limits on what I can do. And I felt like he did a good job of balancing that out, especially as we think about this um, this concept of ambition. What is it that we can do? What is it that we should do? What's possible within your 4,000 weeks? I feel like all of that is really distilled right here into this from this book that we're reading right and by Mary, Mary Shelley yeah what's even remarkable about it is when you remember that Mary Shelley was 19 right 20 21 when it was first released but her own life that short lifespan what we would consider short was already marked by a lot of death. So, um, you know, listeners may remember, or if you've read the preface in the B&H edition, that um, Shelley's mother um, died in childbirth shortly after she was born. Um, Shelley herself lost um, children very young. She was married Mm -hmm. at 16. She, you know, became a mother very young, lost infants and children in, in the short life, even at this point. And so these kinds of questions of, death is present, what are you going to do with your time? And also it gives kind of a a logic to the central plot line, which is the reanimation of the dead, Um, that there is this being that is brought into existence again from the dead, um, from multiple dead, 
<laughs> we'll make that <laughs> <Yes>. point later. <laughs> so so Shelley really is entering into this novel with a lot of purpose and mm-hmm. intentionality. It's a it's a wonderful story in and of itself, but we know from the beginning that she's got certain things that she's arguing for. Um and even within the preface, and what's also striking to me is she was surrounded by these highly ambitious yes. people. Yep. Right. So her own husband was Percy Bysshe Shelley, and he was friends with Lord Byron. And they were like the flame out and burn kind of <laughs> poet types. And and even the question that was posed to her by her husband in writing this novel is, what do you going to make of yourself are you are you what do you have in what do you have Uh what Uh do you have in there and so she enters with that kind of central question and even the subtitle i think it was or how she referred to the novel is a modern prometheus right so it's this image of prometheus stole fire from the gods he went above his station and he was ambitious on behalf of humanity and then he was punished for it Mm -hmm. but in her preface She's wrestling with all these things, and she says that one of her goals, one of her purposes with with the book um, is to exhibit the amiableness of domestic affection and the excellence of universal virtue. And so she's really trying to thread this needle of asking the question, what do we make of our time? And yet she's got something she's driving toward. Mm -hmm. There is a point that she's trying to make with this story. And I think that's really important to keep in mind, even as we begin to unwrap the plot itself and talk about this first reading. Whenever I dig into a book like this and I'm thinking about the author and the author's intent, it's helpful that Mary Shelley has described it as such, because so often in stories, I think we can assume main characters are um, set up as, let's say, the the ones to aspire to. They are the ones that we would want to be like. And so when we start the story, we're thinking that these ambitious characters, they're the ones that we should be setting on a pedestal, that we should be looking to them as a way to model our life. And so I, I think that even in this first reading, we're just getting a taste of who these main characters are. And it helps us to see that maybe we just shouldn't take it all at face value quite yet. <laughs> there's right. there's more to this story. There's more that's that's in, um, kind of motivating these characters to do what they are doing. And we need to, to know them more fully before we can see their end. Right. She's definitely taking the approach of showing not telling like she's letting the story play out and and i mean she gives enough pointers along the way about what we're supposed to derive from it but she wants the life of these individuals or the stories of these individuals to teach the lesson itself um but before we get too far ahead of ourselves i just want to summarize the first reading for folks um if you haven't had a chance to read along we invite you to do that. But um, for sake of today's episode, we just want to get everybody caught up. So as we mentioned last week, the book structure is kind of unique in that it's a frame novel, which means that it is a story within a story within a story. And so when we start the novel, you're actually not starting with Victor Frankenstein. You're not starting 
um, even with his scientific process to create um, this being that he creates. You're starting far out from that. And you're starting with um, a letter that this person named Robert Walton writes to his sister, Margaret. And Robert Walton is something of an explorer. And he is far away from England. He's in um, northeastern Russia on his way to the North Pole. And he wants to achieve glory through this um, ex exploration. And he's writing to his sister and he's talking about his voyage and how dangerous it is and how he got there. And he's bemoaning the fact that he doesn't have any friends. Um, he's got a crew and they're all kind of in the same place of wanting to make um, some contribution to humanity. And, and he's really like very explicit with this. So he writes to his sister that um, he he wants to he, you cannot contest the inestimable benefit which I shall confer on all mankind to the last generation. This is how he perceives his work. And later in the, the letter, he writes, I imagine that I also might obtain a niche in the temple where the names of Homer and Shakespeare are consecrated. Do I not deserve to accomplish some great purpose? And so there is this immediate introduction of this idea of ambition and what we could accomplish with our lives. So Robert, writing to his sister Margaret, is very intent on this grand, glorious um, trip where he's going to bring back scientific knowledge and make a name for himself. Well, as things happen, uh, his ship gets stuck in ice. It's like... There you go. Meet reality. So his ship becomes encased in ice and they're kind of stuck. And they see this strange figure of almost like a, a man-like figure, but much bigger than a man on a dog sled far in the distance. And it passes them. And they're all like, oh, wonder what that was. <laughs> I thought we were the ones who were going to be here first. But they don't do anything. It just passes them and they, they observe it. Well, shortly after that, they come across this beleaguered, physically, mentally exhausted young gentleman that they pull out of the waters and they restore, they, they bring him onto the ship um, and they rescue um, a young man named Victor Frankenstein. And so here's the hilarious thing. Robert's like, I have a friend now. I pulled him out of the North Sea. <laughs> but they, they help Victor recover to the place where he begins to tell his story. And that's when we've entered the next frame of the novel. So now we have Robert writing to his sister, Margaret, telling Margaret about the story that Victor is telling him. And this is where we really enter the, the central plot of the novel. So Victor is from um, Geneva, Switzerland, and he was raised there. His long ancestry there, probably all the way back to Calvin, which is an interesting frame about, about the difference between predestination and providence versus ambition and how much we control our lives. And he is the son of, um, you know, a well-to-do individual there. And his mother has passed away. And as part of the formation of their family, he has um, a member of their family who has been raised as a sister. Her name is Elizabeth, but is not blood-related to him. That his, is his intended fiancé. Um, and I believe he has two younger brothers, much younger brothers, that are stepbrothers. He's the oldest 
he eventually goes off to university. He's he's very self-taught. He, he, he got very interested in this kind of old-fashioned type of alchemy. And he had learned a lot and he had taught himself a lot. And then he goes off to university and he realizes that what he had committed himself to was all bunk. His professors there kind of explained to him, look, you, this is not actually science. And he has this kind of awakening of having spent all this time teaching himself something that wasn't actually accurate. And he talks about how new information slowly displaced old, that there was a kind professor who helped him rather than ridiculing him. And eventually he became an exceptional student within sciences. Um, but there's this tension of, oh my goodness, I wasted all of this time studying this form of alchemy that wasn't actually real. And by the end of this first reading, Victor Frankenstein, who is not a doctor, he's a student, he, he's a, a medical or scientific student, has become obsessed with learning and experimentation. And he has just completely devoted himself over to this goal that he has to learn everything about the sciences and to experiment with it. Um, and to the degree that he begins to lose relationships, he stops writing home. He becomes kind of isolated from other people. He, he doesn't take care of himself. And there's a comment that all the beautiful natural things in the world no longer hold meaning for him. So by the time we get to the end of the first reading, we find that Frankenstein is just driven almost in a manic way to make something of his life through science. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Yana, thank you for summarizing all of that first reading, because there is actually a lot there, even though it's just the preface and the first few chapters of these letters that go back and forth between well, I guess it's just Walton going to his sister, Margaret. But we're learning so much about his background and then also how he starts to get to know this, this stranger who comes aboard his ship, Frankenstein. And some of the things that I was seeing in the reading, first of all, all of these mentions of how time is used and what are you giving your life to all of these questions that relate to our ambition. And there were a few that I noted because I appreciated them, not just for what they said, but also the writing. I mean, can't don't you just love the writing? I, there are so many quotes here, Hannah, that I'm sure you're marking too, that it's just so well written. But I wanted to share one in particular that I thought was so great. Um, this is Walton speaking here and he's again writing to his sister and he's talking about his pursuit and what he is going after and he says that nothing contributes so much to tranquilize the mind as a steady purpose and i i think that quote hannah that is 
exactly what you're talking about in terms of Frankenstein, even having that almost obsessive need to pursue something. It's like when we get our minds set on some goal, very often it takes us to a depth of concentration where we do forget things. We we put all other things aside. We sacrifice relationships. We sacrifice our health. We We put other things aside because we become so fixated on some goal. And I think that she's done a really good job to, and Mary Shelley has done such a good job showing how all of us, all these characters uh, have this in us. And we are prone to becoming locked into some sort of goal in really sacrificing other things along the way. And, you know, that raises the question, though, what should we give ourselves to? Yeah. Because there are things that um, you want to be committed to and give your life to and even sacrifice mm-hmm. for. That is a Christian ideal that that you would, you know, the, the call of Christ is to take up your cross and to sacrifice for things mm-hmm. and to have this singular focus on the kingdom. And, and that really does bring up what would be, um, you know, a a reasonable kind of approach mm. to this, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And and I, I think as well, another question that popped up for me within the the reading was how significant it was that ambition needed to be within relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, Walton talks about needing a friend to pursue ambition with or to pursue his calling with. Um, and yet, when um, Frankenstein is in the the heat of his ambition and his passion, he's friendless. Right. Um, so, you know, there's a lot going on here, and maybe we need to pull one thread at a time um, because it's all there. But, but I guess I'm curious what you've seen answer to this question of what is a proper relationship to ambition. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly what you see in the church, like the evangelical church. Mm-hmm. What kinds of potential answers are we giving to that? Well, th- that's really a good question. What What is our proper response and um, what's our relationship to ambition? This is something that has been a question within church structure, I think for men and for women, but I do think for women in particular, what role do women play? What sort of ambition should we have in terms of ministry and place. I think that these are questions that we're wrestling with today. Um, But definitely, on the whole, how is ambition viewed? I think ambition is okay. Well, it's said that ambition is okay if your ambition is for the right end, meaning um, are you motivated by kingdom things and very often, if your end is supposedly to build the kingdom, then eh, a lot of things are okay. And I think that we're seeing a lot of the fallout with that, um, where how we live and how we pursue is just as important as the end goal. And so this idea of ambition, I feel like it's being cracked wide open right now within the church. Yes, and and I want to be careful. Again, there is nothing wrong with having goals or God-given pursuits that require sacrifice and 
you know, a focused devotion. Um, but there's something else going on here. And I think within the reading, what I saw was that there was this, I'm going to make my own glory, right? So um, I'm going to be ambitious for something, but it's directly related to my own insecurities, right? So, so it's like, I don't have intrinsic glory as an image bearer. Um, I can't be content with just a basic life if that's what God called me to. Like, I have this drive to make my life meaningful. It's like, don't waste your Frankenstein. You know, like, it. it's don't waste your life because you could potentially waste it. And I think it's true that we could... Um, engage in meaningless things. And that's part of uh, Berkman's thesis in 4,000 weeks is you've got a limited amount of time. Make sure you're using your time for meaningful things. But then the question comes back, what is meaningful? Um, what brings honor and glory? And is it okay that you never do anything remarkable right. or well-known? Is the faithful life ambitious enough is being faithful enough and th that really is the question because the the problem with this hannah is that we are so easily i guess swayed or or not fooled but we we have goals in mind and we are we are so prone to assigning good meaning to those goals like we we focus on the good part of the goal without seeing that, oh, we we actually have a whole lot of our own glory in mind. And so we raise up the good part and sort of downplay the bad part without realizing both of those things are in existence. And that's why I think that's why we do need friendship and community, because we need to have other people reflecting back to us, hey, that goal might be good, but the way you're going about it is not good. It's not all pure. Yes. And, and yet sometimes community can actually enable our ambition. Mm, mm -hmm. And that was actually a comment I think Walton made. Um, I don't have it right here, but he was talking about needing a friend to share in his great purpose. And, mm -hmm. and what was fascinating to me is like he was writing to his sister who was a friend, but somehow she didn't factor into his sense that she is partnering with me in my ambition. And so this is a really interesting dynamic within the novel. And I think one that has you know, presents itself in the modern era, too, is somehow men can be ambitious for glory and all their bro dudes can get together and they can have this <laughs> mission. But the women are not supposed to be ambitious. And if you look at the characters, and this will um, kind of develop itself through the course of the novel, uh, the, the women are like foils to the men's ambition. They are mm -hmm. there to receive and not be ambitious and not pursue certain things. They're just waiting around for the men to figure out whatever they want to and do. to send their letters and reports. And to send their letters <laughs> to. And so I think there is this tension as I've seen the conversation around ambition play out, especially within evangelical settings, is that um, we almost mark it as a manly uh, endeavor. Mm -hmm. And there is a great deal of 
um, margin on what that could look like and how far you can go to pursue glory. And it's enabled by this kind of friendship bro culture where it's like, well, we're all doing this together. It's the mm-hmm. it's the brotherhood, the band of brothers. And and I'm not saying again, I'm not I'm not dumping on um you know, single gendered friendships or partnerships right. or that sense of camaraderie in any way. I'm just curious how much we can enable each other in the wrong direction about our ambition and how much we can potentially say, yeah, I'm going to turn a blind eye and you can go down that road road Mm -hmm. towards self-glory because that's what I want too. Yes. I think that that comes up time and again in some of the more recent stories that we've seen. Um, We mentioned a few of those in the last episode about Mars Hill and even some of the church scandals that we've seen. And I'm even thinking of um, the current case um elizabeth holmes who had the startup theranos which i'm i never know if i'm pronouncing that correct even though i've listened to the podcast but she had created this machine that was supposed to be a one drop of blood and it will identify any disease that you might have and it was all really a scam and and how she was set up and propped up by a group by some people um, that she was working with, and they did not call her back and say, hey, this isn't going in the right direction. And those who did, she cut off. And so I think that's another thing is that sometimes when there is a voice of reason, those people get pushed out and cut off because the people who are headed in a certain direction altogether, there's that um, force that comes when you have multiple people all headed in the same direction it's like nope we're we're still going and you're going to get left behind yeah and the wonderful thing about this novel in particular is shelly just introduces this in the first section and this is something she's going to pull through the entire novel and really that doesn't get resolved until the very end no because one of the things i found um you see robert walton writing this letter back and he's still in the peak of his ambition Mm-hmm. And Victor Frankenstein shows up and begins to tell his tale. And it's almost like as a reader, you're like, are you going to learn from this, Robert? Yeah. Like, this is a cautionary t- Like, you know something has gone terribly wrong in this pursuit of ambition. You don't know all yet. You don't know. Uh, but but you do know that Victor Frankenstein is far from home in the North Sea and he's near death. And you do know that Robert Walton is still aiming for glory. And so there's this tension of, say, how exactly will this play out? Mm-hmm. Is Walton going to take the cue? Is Frankenstein truly, like, humbled by mm-hmm. his story? Um, and and even what would be the proper response here? Um, because I think there's there's a sense in which you're in the North Sea. You've got to figure something out, you know, like. right. right. <laughs> Are we going to press forward through all this ice? or Are we, are we going to push forward? Is, is yeah. that what is uh-huh. we're called to at this moment? Like, is it just a hurdle and you just need to get over it and we need to keep going? Or is this the moment where we learn, oh, this endeavor itself might have been a little, a bridge too far? And And I think as a Christian, and this doesn't come up in the novel, you know, there really isn't a sense of a personal God in the novel. 
But part of answering that as a Christian is submitting our plans and our ambitions to God. It doesn't mean not dreaming. It doesn't mean just staying back at home and not going on the venture to the North Pole. But what it does mean is submitting to a sovereign God who has plans for us and and plans that might be more ambitious and, and wider than we would plan for ourselves. But also recognizing that there comes a point where there's like, you, you've got to take your hands off of your plans and you don't just push forward in ambition because you're so desperate to redeem your life or redeem your time. And I think to do that, to surrender to God, it requires humility. It requires honoring the limits of your humanity, but it also requires a level of security of knowing that even if you don't accomplish anything dramatic with your life, that you are still valued and loved and honored by the sheer nature of your existence as an image bearer. There's this strange tension between making sure that you aren't being, let's say, apathetically idle um, as compared to obsessively driven and with your life. And yes, God has given us each gifts and passions, and we are free to pursue those in a way that would contribute to the common good and and bring people to the kingdom or or whatever we're wanting to call that. Um, we can somehow hold the tension between I'm going to hold these things loosely and yet I can still be excited about them and pursue them without feeling um, concern or guilt at every turn. Like, what if my ambition is taking over? <laughs> what if I'm I'm not heeding warnings that we're hearing, um, either from classics like this or from stories that we see in the news? So this is something that we all have to wrestle with, is what is it that I'm called to? And can I pursue it with joy without holding on so tightly that I make a mess of it? That's hard. But I think that as we look at at texts like this and we talk things out and have these conversations, we are wrestling our way through them in a way that benefits us and also others because it will affect how we pursue the things that we're interested in in life and contribute to the good of others. Yeah, and learning to be a faithful friend in the midst of that. That's another mm. central question that isn't yet resolved, it's just introduced, is what would it look like um, to be with each other in a way that reminds each other to do exactly what you suggested? I'm thinking about how you mentioned limits and and knowing that we can't do everything. Um, I think that even here at the beginning of this novel, Frankenstein is hinting to Walton that there are limits and you should think about what the end will be if you continue down this way. And for us to be able to do that for each other to say, hey, you have limits, so let's make sure that you're not wasting the time that you have. We've, we talked about that at the very beginning with the Oliver Berkman book. Um, we can't do everything. So we have to make choices and 
um, making sure that we're making wise ones. I definitely depend on the council of friends for that, um, just so that I can see different perspectives because you can't, you don't have time to make all the mistakes, right? You've got to learn from other people. <laughs> That's right. Well, we are so glad that you are joining us in this reading um, over the next few weeks. Um, if you have read um, this section, we'd love for you to share your favorite lit bits, the little mm-hmm. parts of the chapter or the reading that jumped out at you. Um, you can share those with us on Twitter at Persuasion CAPC or in uh, the Members Forum of Christ and Pop Culture. We want to hear what you're catching. What are you writing in you, the margin of your book? And um, just help us generate good conversation around Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. As always, if you're not a member of the Christ and Pop Culture Members Forum, you can become a member for just $5 a month and support this conversation and all of the other good work happening at Christ and Pop Culture. Persuasion is produced by Jonathan Clausen, and it's part of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Find all those shows at ChristandPopCulture.com or search for them at iTunes. Thanks to all of you for listening to Persuasion, and we will catch you next time. You have been listening to Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at ChristandPopCulture.com slash network. Theme music by Maiden Name. This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.